Hi, this is David Yaz at the Boston Podcast Network, hoping you are staying safe and healthy during this period of precaution over the coronavirus. It's difficult to connect with your clients and contacts in a period such as this, but here we continue to produce podcasts that allow you to connect with the people that you want to reach. You've got a rapt audience like never before. People are home, they're listening, and they're waiting to hear from you. We can create a professional podcast with a quick turnaround and do the whole thing remotely so you don't have to leave your home. Get in touch with us at pod617.com. From the Pod 617 Studios in Westwood, Massachusetts, it's the Boston Podcast with David Yaz and a rotating cast of characters from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. This is our f***ing city. Hello everyone, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, all the ships at sea, lovers, muggers, and thieves, welcome to the Boston Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you like this podcast, please share the love, hit the share button, send it along, subscribe to us on Apple Podcast. I need to get right to our guest today because you're in for a treat. If you watch Netflix, and my lord, who doesn't, you might be aware of the docuseries that they posted recently. It's called Lennox Hill, about a hospital in New York. And it's so, I'm sitting there watching the doc. It's very good. It's compelling. Eight parts. I gobbled up the whole thing in maybe a couple days. But in the opening moments, one of the doctors walks up and he's, he's handsome and he's slick and he's clearly smart and he knows exactly what he's doing. Then I realize it's my old fraternity brother, John Bookfar. So welcome to the program, Dr. John Bookfar. How's it going? Very good. Thanks for having me, Dave. Good to hear you. <laughs> radio voice <laughs> yeah i don't know if i if i developed the radio voice during the days when we were performing skits in our fraternity house back at the university of pennsylvania um i remember you being a star of skit night however you you pulled no punches it got brutal i, I don't have much recollection <laughs> how convenient so uh, Dr. Bookfar, by the way, is the vice chair of neurosurgery at Lenox Hill. Has your life changed since the doc? You're, you were, and for those that haven't seen it yet, people have been asking me, you know, when I tell them I went to college with this guy and the guy that comes through as truly, truly a hero and, and really tremendous blend of compassion, expertise, and, and under really tough conditions. What was he like in college? And I say he was a real pain in the ass, but... I'm not surprised because, because he always had the confidence. How has it been since the thing aired? You know, I think that uh, we're just really pleased with how Ulari Films, who are the producers, uh, Adi and Ruthie, a husband and wife team, really uh, did a beautiful job in rendering a truthful rendition of what happens behind the walls of a hospital, whether it's there in Boston or here in New York or anywhere across the country. Obviously, with the COVID crisis, we had a, another lens into the healthcare system. And obviously, this show is dropping at an important time where, frankly, healthcare heroes are being recognized. But what the show really has done is, is importantly shed light on some very important healthcare providers, not just doctors, but uh, nurses, respiratory therapists, environmental engineers, administration, and also, and, and frankly, uncovers some uh, nasty truths about our healthcare system. What let's let me let me pick up on that. What what kind of nasty truths? Well, as, as you'll see in the show, we we don't pull any punches when we talk about healthcare inequalities uh, for uh, the poor, the less privileged. That there are there are racial inequalities, there are sex inequalities. 
there are, are business decisions that are made in medicine that are not always uh, uh, truthful in that they're, they're motivated by greed, uh, much like any other business. And that's an, an enduring frustration for us as uh, practitioners who went into medicine and took the Hippocratic Oath mm-hmm. uh, not to make a profit, but to help people. Yeah. And you do see, for example, one patient who is a frequent visitor of Lenox Hill and she's elderly and she has recently become homeless and members of your staff, your colleagues just expressing how heartbroken they are for the prospects of what's going to happen to this woman. That absolutely comes through. Did you have any trepidation when you and your colleagues agreed to laying the cameras into not just into the hospital, but into the operating room and every place else? Well, yes, we, you know, speaking personally, um, and frankly, it was very helpful to do this with another uh, Penn colleague of, of ours, whose name is David Langer, who's uh, also uh, featured on the show. Mm-hmm. Of course, we had trepidation because we wanted to be truthful. But uh, as you see, you know, we, we dropped the F-bomb when, mm-hmm. when we have to. And we, don't, we, we decided early on that if we were going to do this, we trusted the production company. And they were really terrific in in depicting us as is we weren't acting there was no script Um, but of course we had trepidation in that uh, people may misinterpret things or just because you know we filmed 450 hours of footage and they Mm. used eight of it so Mm. you can imagine that um, we're not always perfect on camera and uh, you know there's some stress involved with having uh, a microphone on yeah the the Footage was shot in 2018, so important to note. And yet I completely agree with you that it resonates even more now during the pandemic. You mentioned Dr. Langer. He's, he's quoted early in, the, in episode one, describing you, saying he left Cornell. Who the fuck leaves Cornell to come to Lenox Hill to start from zero? Uh, by the way, I, I think it was the right move to keep the F-bombs in there. Immediately, that, that kind of put yourself out there, and I thought it lent true reality to it when so many documentaries sometimes seem staged, right? But let's answer the question because you don't point blank answer it in the doc, but why did you leave Cornell to, to go to this hospital, which I guess at the time was, it was a growing practice in neurosurgery, but not necessarily the best. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, um, you and I were at Penn together, which is sort of an Ivy League institution. And I went to Cornell, another Ivy League institution. When I got approached to, um, by David to look at starting the neurosurgery program at Lenox Hill Hospital, which is a terrific hospital on Park Avenue on 77th in Manhattan and has a storied reputation uh, dating back uh, centuries. But it didn't have uh, the higher level surgery, uh, particularly neurosurgery that other large academic centers had. And so um, initially I had trepidation about basically starting from scratch. It's one thing to deliver a baby at Lenox Hill Hospital, but to develop the resources, infrastructure, research um, at a hospital uh, from scratch is challenging. But then as I wrap my hands around it and we we got the support of the Northwell Health System, which is the largest health system in New York State uh, with 23 hospitals, about $12 billion in revenue. And they'd come in and bought Lenox Hill Hospital Manhattan Eye and Ear and the old St. Vincent's Hospital, which has a terrific history, particularly in HIV treatments. Um, I knew that uh, I would have my finger on the pulse of starting something terrific, and particularly surrounding ourselves with people like-minded with the same ethos and same culture, that it was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. How is Dr. Langer these days? Are you guys still in the same roles, still doing your thing? Yeah, he's across the hall about six yards away, and (laughs) and frankly... um, 
having that sort of relationship with a, a, a colleague and friend and brother who I've known for 23 years, um, frankly, who's not threatened by me and I'm not threatened by him. And uh, we, we are one plus one equals three. And uh, from the beginning, we decided we were going to do this together. And yes, he's got the chair title. I got the vice chair title, but on any given day, we're in lockstep and uh, it's been in, it's, it's the most unique relationship um, in neurosurgery that you can find in the country where we're, we're so collegial and we work together. I know John Bookvar takes a backseat to no one, even if it's just in title, but um, maybe that comes from you being an identical twin. I don't know. <laughs> but so you mentioned Dr. Langer, the other doctors depicted in the doc, Dr. Macri and Dr. Richardson, both female, both, both African-American, right? No, and, both oh, women of color. Uh, one is African-American, one is Hispanic. Okay, thanks for correcting me on that. Um, do, do you, now we don't see too much interaction between you. You're, I mean, Grant, they're delivering babies. Um, they're literally delivering babies in this doc because they both become pregnant during the, the course of the show. Did you uh, have a relationship with them before this? No, in fact, yeah. they we had no relationship with them. And okay. one of the parts of the documentary that I think is most telling is at any given moment, you know the storylines in the in the documentary are um, um, in in series, meaning that you jump from one scene to the next. But this the stories are going on simultaneously in real life, and so um, obviously Amanda Little Richardson is the OBGYN. She's in a totally different area of the hospital, and uh, Martha Macri, who's uh, the ER physician, is actually at the St. Vincent's facility, which became a standalone emergency room, the first of its kind, as a matter of fact where they took an old hospital and made a 24 hour, a beautiful emergency room. Mm -hmm. uh, and when, uh, so that's where she works. It's called Lenox Hill Greenwich village. Okay. So there was no previous uh, um, interaction between us prior to uh, getting close to the launch. Now there has been not much the criticism, but some criticism about the doc. And one thing I read is that in the times that we're living in, you mentioned how the pandemic makes this really top of mind and topical with the black lives matter mo uh, movement you've got um the the casting so to speak of this documentary you and dr langer both um middle-aged no offense but you're there now john uh white men and the two women women of color who end up having to put their career on hold because they both get pregnant was um some some say it was a little bit of an odd positioning did that did that trouble you at all when you saw it obviously it's not anything really under your control but did that come out at all do you think yeah i think that was a troubling review um i to say i took offense to it um yeah i did mm -hmm. and um you know we have spent a lot of time and and they they depict us as white men of privilege in that particular and i take offense to that um you know, we initiated our Black Lives Matter movement here at Lenox Hill, where we we started, we being me and David, uh, a program where at 7 p.m. and so we we went outside and we had signs that said, "You clap for us, we kneel for you," and and that started a, a movement across the country uh, to understand and uh, appreciate the um, injustices uh, that have been occurring, not just in healthcare, obviously, but across the country for centuries and and the racism that has occurred. So we took offense to that. Obviously, what, what the reporter doesn't know is that it actually started with six of us, and the, the producers picked us. We had nothing to do with who they chose, and mm. um, we, we don't 
we don't believe race or or uh, creed or sex has anything to do with the characters that they chose. It just so happens that in neurosurgery, uh, although we are making strides to to diversify the field, we have a problem still, and that is predominantly uh, white men, and that is something that the field is is improving upon as we have more and more women joining uh, the neurosurgery ranks and and people of color, and so that is an institutional problem and one that we're addressing, and, and we're proud to be address, addressing that. So you met, you mentioned something that was not covered in the documentary that there were other players here which any documentary, the, the viewer is always left to wonder, you know, what gets left on the cutting room floor or what might have been portrayed a little differently to pump up the drama. Um, what, what did we miss, whether, whether pro or con? What part of your day-to-day maybe wasn't captured in the documentary? Well, I think they did a terrific job capturing it. They really portrayed us as truthful. Where uh, David and I, for example, are, are family men, uh, happily married for decades and uh, with many children, four children each. And um, so I think they captured it. I think what they ended up having to cut, there were some beautiful scenes of us and our families together that didn't make it in. In fact, that same reviewer who who commented that you mentioned uh, also mentioned that uh, our families have obviously taken a backseat to our ambitious lives for decades, right. which would be farther from the truth mm-hmm. if anyone who knows me. And uh, my wife was very close to tweeting back at him mm-hmm. uh, in disgust. Uh, so there are times when those personal uh, images were, were cut, and that's just the uh, poetic license of the, uh, of the production company, who I think did an amazing job. Yeah, there, there is a scene or two of you in your home with Jody and your kids, but it's not much, let's face it. Um, and was, so what, what did Jody think of the documentary, your wife? She loves it. Oh, she did? Okay. Yeah, she does love it. And obviously her, you know, her phone call, uh, in the beat in the first episode is, is quite uh, hysterical and and funny. And, (laughs) you know, I think that, um, she bought in and we all had a discussion that this was, an important uh, way for us to convey what life is like uh, as a doctor. I think I felt strongly that this was an opportunity for us to reintroduce role models to our children, uh, particularly in this day and age, whose role models are influencers on Instagram and TikTok. And they're hearing stories of 16-year-olds on TikTok that have 8 million followers. And for everything they post, they get 600 bucks or something like that. And and this was our opportunity to say, you know what, Here, here's an opportunity for us to introduce nursing, introduce physicians, introduce a whole host of healthcare-related jobs, which, by the way, is one of the largest industries uh, to not be hit, you know, post COVID. Mm-hmm. So it was an important opportunity. Jody bought in. My kids had some trepidation as teenagers, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, again, I think those kind of uh, truthful moments that are captured, it's how we live. And mm-hmm. uh, she was part of it. Well, I'm with you on that one. If someone should be an influencer, it should be you and your colleagues and not um, some young person who is, you know, looking nice on TikTok or on Instagram, things like that. That's a, that's a depressing trend. Tell me about when, when the cameras were first in the operating room, did you, was it, was that distracting? That's what's it's for, as a viewer, it's one of the wonderful things about the series is that you're taken inside the operating room. There's one scene even where we see the patient 
whose brain you are operating on and he's awake and he's talking to you, which was blew my mind. I suppose I knew that that was a thing. But anyways, when the cameras came in, what was that like? So, you know, you, you mentioned my confidence in the beginning of, of the podcast. No doubt. You, have, you have to have some confidence going in that uh, you're not going to screw up, frankly. Uh, if you go in and think that, oh, my gosh, there's a camera in the room, you start catastrophizing what's going to happen. That's, that's not a recipe for success. Mm-hmm. But um, to the credit of the production company, they reassured us uh, from the beginning that um, – and we, of course uh, – patient safety was first and foremost. And there was never, not a single time where a camera being in, in a particular location or the fact that we were filming ever compromised a decision, uh, patient outcome, surgical complication, nothing. Mm-hmm. And uh, frankly, we're neurosurgeons. We have complications that are uh, unavoidable sometimes and uh, it pains us and we do everything we can to minimize those risks. Um, but one of the things that we did do, and I speak for David, is that we were there for each other and made sure that even in, in doing surgeries together um, helped cushion the anxiety, if you will, of um, anything. And we do that regardless of whether there's a camera in the room or not mm-hmm. and making sure that you have a co-pilot. Uh, and that's, that's how we, we fly every plane uh, with two pilots and that's how we approach our job. Now, the, the question I've been saving is just, how do you do it? And by that, I mean, right off the bat, we see you making phone calls to families of your patients, sometimes with good news, oftentimes with bad news. And it seems like you and Dr. Lang are both, you can correct me if I'm wrong, have taken the philosophy to, to kind of be all in on this, that it's okay to care. Oftentimes, either one of you are being told, or you're telling the patients that you're, you're family now. You go through this thing, and yet, there are remarkable saves and heartbreaking losses. Why is that true? Have you, have you decided it's just part of the job to get at least somewhat emotionally invested and, and how can you manage that? Well, look, that is part of my job. And, you know, I lost my dad to uh, lymphoma in 2009 and was particularly dismayed that at a world famous cancer center, the doctors could have given a shit. Mm. And despite the fact I was a physician who worked across the street from them. So um, I have made it part of my raison d'etre from the minute I took the Hippocratic Oath that um, I, w- I always tell my patients as soon as they see me, I'm going to give them good news, but I'm not going to sugarcoat the bad news. And um, I'm going to help them through it. And one of the things that we do and we try to teach even our medical students and residents is how do you discuss the terminality of an illness before that illness becomes terminal? And to make sure that the patients have an understanding and a trust in you that we're going to extend quality of life and extend life to the best of our abilities. But when the time comes where our treatments are no longer effective, that we make sure that 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 patient and their families are helped and and kept um, comfortable until the very last uh, breath. And it's 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 exquisitely painful. Um, It's not an easy thing to train and not everyone is good at it, frankly. Um, so it takes practice. I, I have to practice it. I have to make sure that I understand the pain uh, that each family is going through. And frankly, um, there's a lot of crying in the stairwell from us, um, sometimes, and that's okay too. Mm. So one of the smaller moments in the doc is when there is a, a husband bedside with his wife who has 
recently undergone surgery and she is hopefully on the road to recovery as we see her. He is trying to get her to repeat certain things, what her name is and things like that, because the functions are slowly coming back. And at one point he asked her who the president is, and she struggles with that. And he eventually says, it's Trump, and we really like him, right? I thought that was interesting they left that in. I wonder if they left it in because it it passed by in a blip. And then I have to say, as a viewer, I'm, I'm simply not a, a Trump guy, and I don't need to know your politics, John, but, but normally that might... Um, raise a flag. Maybe I shouldn't like these people as much as I just did. It passed so quickly. I, st- I still, as a viewer, had the same compassion. Did you think it was interesting they left that in? Yeah, and I think some of the uh, you know reviewers and critics uh, that have seen the show have appreciated that it was left in. And and really, what it it's a small comment. Right. Um, and I I think I'm speaking for David, who may not share this. The um, he does not share necessarily the political views uh, that. Um, that particular family has, but we don't treat patients based on the red state or the blueness of the state. Um, and that goes back to our uh, discussion on uh, racial inequalities and injustices. We're healthcare providers and uh, we look at the humanity of everybody and that's what drives our decision-making regardless of the ability to pay, regardless of their political affiliation. So that's the beauty of that, that single comment. And um, it's the beauty of the microcosm of the hospital system in general, which, is one of the most diverse uh, settings uh, you can find anywhere in the country. I noticed you're an honorary surgeon of the NYPD and New York State Troopers. Is there a backstory behind that? Look, I, I, um, there is no backstory. We, we love to treat uh, our first responders, and we obviously, particularly in New York, have been touched by tragedy uh, by men and women who have had to run into buildings, uh, obviously in 9-11 and whatnot. So it's an honor to serve. Both David and I were selected um, to be NYPD honorary surgeons and, and uh, New York State trooper surgeons. And um, again, um, we are proud to serve our colleagues who are first responders and make sure that they're not just the first responders, but respond to the the, the health-related issues of, of the families. And so that's a particular pride of mine that I can serve those those first responders as well. John, I saw, I saw you quoted in, I believe it was New York Post, and you told them that life during the pandemic at the hospital has been, you didn't use the word chaotic, but it, but it was, it, the hospital was certainly affected and battened down the hatches and you were proud of how you had responded. As a viewer of the documentary, I say, I don't know how it could have gotten any more <laughs> pressure filled or any more chaotic than, than we witnessed. So if you can tell us in a nutshell, if it's possible, what has it been like? Well, yeah, as I told you, the, the, this started about March 6th, uh, the week of about March 6th, and we started then getting a couple of patients. And sort of as the wind picks up before a hurricane, um, we knew within a couple of days that we were in, in for a real uh, storm. And frankly, New York State was not prepared. The federal government wasn't prepared. I'm not blaming anybody, but we were hit with an absolute torrent of uh, tragedy and devastation when it came to the patients that surged in through our every every uh, door in this building. In the in a matter of two weeks, we had to really shut down the hospital, restart, rebuild almost every floor unit into intensive care units, get as many respirators as we could, get as many uh, dialysis machines as we could. We were moving dialysis. Uh, uh, respirators and dialysis machines in the middle of the night from hospital to hospital, running uh, 
PPE or provider protection equipment uh, in the middle of the night from one uh, institution to another. And, uh, and frankly, at one point, the oxygen level at this hospital, Lenox Hall Hospital, uh, started to flicker uh, like uh, the browning of uh, in a brownout. And so um, fortunately, everybody, uh, we worked 24-7. Uh, we all took off, we took off our neurosurgical hats and we became critical care specialists. I ran clinical trials uh, for COVID. So I was going in and, and consenting uh, patients and families uh, to let uh, have a new medications given to them uh, for example, from Gilead or for Regeneron, for uh, convalescent plasma. And so we came out of that. And the way I describe it is it's as if uh, the virus was at the front door trying to beat down the door and every healthcare provider, uh, doctor, nurse, PA, respiratory therapist was on the other side of the door, basically holding the door uh, shut. And we held the door shut. Uh, we lost a lot of lives, um, which is terribly tragic. Uh, but the healthcare system stood, and frankly, now we're better than we were pre-COVID. Our hospitals are fully renovated. Our infrastructure is better. Our electronic medical records are are faster. Our um, telehealth and telemedicine is up and running. So we're going to come out, and we have come out better uh, than we were before. The um, sheer attention devoted to this documentary inevitably could, I imagine, do some good for what you do. So this is your chance to tell our listeners how they can help. For a viewer that says, it's amazing what they do, I want to support that hospital, or any, any of the, associate, the groups that you work with, uh, John, tell us how people can do that. Well, look, I think it, you don't need to do anything here in New York. Uh, you can do anything you want, uh, but I would pay attention to your local community hospital or to your hospitals in Boston. Um, everybody needs, you know, hospital health systems uh, up and down the, the United States has have lost about a billion dollars each over the last three months, including ours. And so go to their websites, hit the donate now, the button, give $10, give $50, give a dollar, maybe buy a, a lunch for a nursing uh, unit uh, at a hospital one day, have your employer uh, if you, if let's, for example, you make backpacks as a factory, maybe donate a uh, hundred backpacks to the, uh, respiratory therapist at your local hospital, those kind of things really go a long way and, um, uh, can help, uh, the, any of the healthcare providers that, that are in your community. So, um, I appreciate you, you filling us in on all of this, uh, John, and I wish you luck. Um, again, I, I was amazed at the poise and compassion and just the the importance of what what you do there so please accept my congratulations and can you admit to everyone that a lot of that poise was developed uh around the year 1990 you were three years my junior at the fraternity and we weren't known as the toughest fraternity let's let's call a spade a spade (laughs) but you know on hell night we did make you sit in the same room for about 6 hours listening to the same song i imagine that's where the real poise and integrity of you developed isn't that right i neither affirm nor deny <laughs> that 
<laughs> well, fair enough. Um, thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Bookfar. Again, it's Dr. John Bookfar. The documentary, it's on Netflix. You can't miss it, guys. Lennox Hill, please watch it. I'm going to go back and watch it again because it really was that compelling. Thanks for joining us as a guest. If you like this podcast, please share it with a friend. Help share the gospel of Dr. Bookfar and his colleagues. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Boston Podcast. My name is Dave. I'm just a guy from Boston, but if you're not from Boston, you must be the other guy. Enjoy the day, everybody.